episode 21 of the DNC podcast, Monday edition. How's your Monday going, man? Mondays are, I have a weird relationship with Mondays. I think with COVID, it's changed my thought process on them. But typically, Mondays are like one of my busiest days, just simply for the mere fact that we're coming off of a weekend and there's just a bunch of stuff that maybe was left, was left over from Friday and we have to now get to it on Monday. And so, um, but you know what? I feel like being productive and being busy are two different things. And I feel like we're, we've been really productive the last, you know, three to four months during this shutdown. So I honestly can't complain, but I'm definitely not the best of friends with Mondays. I'm normally pretty good with Mondays. Today though, I'm like, it was one of those Mondays. You ever have those Mondays where you're like, it's going to be a, a long week? Like not a long week, like a long, long week. That was yeah, like, it sets the whole precedent for the week. Yeah, but I'm, I'm going to stay positive with the positive vibe. So <laughs> I will defeat Monday. We'll get through the podcast, have a Keep great episode and uh, it'll be a good week, man. But some fun stuff. I mean, baseball's back Thursday. That's going to be exciting. Finally, we're back, man. Live, live in game season action like we're not having to talk about spring training or exhibition games like this is the real deal here we go 60 games let's see who's going to come out on top i think the most devastating thing i found out about last week was the fact that barber shops were going to close again in california but they're going to have a custom barber shop in the nba bubble dude you need to go to orlando you just need to get a you just need to get a round trip ticket to orlando get into the bubble somehow, some way. I feel like they have like this force field around the whole thing. So I heard there was a rumor of them trying to, like players were trying to sneak in girls into the bubble, but they said that security is literally like CIA level. I think it was, like I think it was just James Harden. I mean, if it is just James, if, if he has, if it's plural, like that's super impressive. Like the fact that he's pulling that off in a bubble and they said like the security is CIA level. Like there's just no way, it's almost impossible to get anybody in there. So if he's able to pull that off, I mean, he's he might just be the goat of the 2020 season or the restart of the season. I saw something with Kelly Oubre where a lot of people were tweeting about like the lack of good food in the bubble. And so he was tweeting to people like, hey, just DoorDash it. And then someone DoorDashed it. And then they had to re-quarantine because they went outside the bubble to literally grab the DoorDash. And then 30 minutes later, he's like, never mind, man. I don't... I feel like the food is good. Like I'm obviously I'm not there, but from the pictures that I've seen, like I don't really get why it's so bad. And they've allowed the players to bring in like snacks and like their own food. So I feel like if you didn't bring food that you like, like that's on you. That's not the league's issue. So I mean, I don't mean to get into your pick of the week last week of going after these multi-million dollar athletes complaining about this billion dollar bubble that the league is throwing together in 60 days. So I don't know. I, I feel like you just need to accept what it is and i feel like once games start back up and you're back in the flow of, of the season like you're not gonna be thinking about that type of stuff then again who knows like lebron's probably got a personal chef with him so he really doesn't care but everybody i guess needs to get on lebron's level well speaking about sports starting next week on the podcast today we're going to talk about baseball the season starting on thursday we got a few double headers so Cole and I are going to get into like our biggest thoughts of the season, projections, what we expect with this shortened season. We're also going to talk about the Twitter war between NFL players and the league and the commissioner in regards to safety and healthy and health for football. But before that, I'm going to start with my pick of the day. And for today, my pick of the day is how fantasy sports is ruining how we rank athletes. So historically, I've been a big fantasy football guy. It's a guy. good one. And mainly it's because like I just miss the competitiveness of not playing sports anymore, right? So you get yeah, to draft people, sure. you get to compete against other people. But 
fantasy football is it's so driven by like the offensive player is in. And all those stats are important. Like you can see a guy on the field and you can tell like one's better than the other, but they might not just be like used in their scheme, right? And so obviously I went on a little rant a few weeks ago, or maybe it was even last week about Michael Thomas, right? No blatant disregard <laughs> you just can't leave to him Michael alone. Thomas. He's a target. To me, like right there, that's what's wrong with fantasy football. When you have like a game like Madden, rank Michael Thomas as the best receiver in football. It's really it's just disrespectful. disrespectful to like yeah. a guy like Julio Jones, who has consistently done it for a decade. You have a guy like DeAndre Hopkins, who besides no one, <laughs> he's to me, he's arguably the best receiver in football up there with Julio. I mean, it's just kind of, I guess your preference on the style of receiver that you want. But you and I were talking back and forth about this a couple days ago. Like there's probably eight to 10 receivers I would take over Michael Thomas right now. Like, and I wouldn't bat an eye. Yeah, because when you look at it, like before he got to Sean Watson a few years ago, he had nobody throwing him the football. I mean, the guy is going for 120 grabs every year with nobody. And then like OBJ, now I'm actually a really big fan of OBJ. I think off the field and some of even the stuff he does on the field when you're wearing a $200,000 watch in a game, I it's think you, some of that, some of that's a Cleveland effect. It's like you leave New York and you want to stay relevant. But you look at how dominant he was, you know, his one year with Eli, and then Eli obviously kind of falls off the map. And then you look at Baker, who last year, I put a lot on Baker, but you also look at the fact that Baker was in a franchise that was very dysfunctional. It looked like they didn't have a game plan. It was like, hey, this week we're going to throw to OBJ. This week we're going to hand the ball off to Chubb 25 times. But it wasn't like a consistent game plan. So when you think about that, like he hasn't been put in the correct scenario to succeed statistically like he could in a different offense. But you look at OBJ and it's like, if you put OBJ in that Saints offense or you put OBJ in that Rams offense, like I'm going to take OBJ over Cooper Cup. 100%. But in the fantasy world, we're going to put Cooper Cup as a top five receiver. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point that you're making, just simply because fantasy has skewed the the vision of how people see football and how they see the players and how they gauge which guy's better than the other. And a guy like Odell Beckham, who goes to Cleveland, and really his whole career, he's been with really average quarterback play. And I say average quarterback play because I don't think Eli Manning's an average quarterback. I don't think he's as great as people think he is simply because he has those two Super Bowl rings, but he was towards the tail end of his career when OBJ came into the league. And then he obviously had Baker last year, but he still went over a thousand yards. So I think Odell's due overdue for an incredible breakthrough breakout year again, um, this upcoming season, because he's a guy that really can affect the game in so many different ways. He's so he's so athletic. He's such a great route runner. He has great hands. He's incredibly fast. Um, and I, I think he's very complete. I don't necessarily think he's the greatest run blocking receiver in the league, but the thing with Odell is he plays hard and he plays with passion and grit and you love to see that. And so um, I think this with the new offense with Stefanski coming in as the head coach, and I think Baker learned a lot from last year. Hopefully, if he doesn't, he'll probably be gone, and Trevor Lawrence will be the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns. But I love OBJ's game, and another couple of guys to like rattle off. I mean, I would even take guys like Stephon Diggs over him. 
think Stephon Diggs is very underrated. I mean, he got traded for a first-round pick this offseason. He's going to Buffalo, so he's going from Minnesota to Buffalo. Not the biggest football markets, but a guy that's really effective um, and is really a great all-around receiver in the game. And, um, you know, I, I think just thinking about Michael Thomas's game, like I think of a guy like Marcus Colston who kind of came before him, was a very similar player to him, not fast, but big, physical, short intermediate routes. Drew Brees and him had a great connection, but Marcus Colston is not really considered a great receiver or, I mean, I think, I don't even know if he made it to a Pro Bowl and put up a lot of yards and put up a lot of stats simply because he was in Sean Payton's offense with Drew Brees. And I feel the same way about Michael Thomas. Like there's nothing that I look at in Michael Thomas's game where he wows me. And I think a lot of people will be surprised by this take. I'm not trying to be hot take guy. This is just my eye test and what I've seen over the last three to four years that he's been in the league. And to say that he, and again, I know it's Madden rating, so I'm not saying that everybody in the league feels this way about Michael Thomas, but when you look at his game and you look at a guy like Julio Jones, who in my opinion has been the best receiver in football for the last five to seven years, hands down, no debate. Um, it's just really disrespectful because like you said, if you remove Michael Thomas from that Saints offense and you place him in a different offense, if you maybe put him in Cleveland, like he's an average receiver at that point. And so I think that's even more of a testament to a guy like OBJ, who really I think could go anywhere and be productive. As long as he's going to get his targets, as long as you're strategic in your game plan and how you're going to incorporate him into that game plan, he's going to be impactful. Um, and the thing is you always have to game plan from a defensive side just where, where's OBJ going to be? Like, where's 13 going to be on the field? I don't feel that way about Michael Thomas. So I don't know. I, I, I think that in this day and age, even we were talking today about Patrick Mahomes, it's like fantasy and recency bias. Those things play, I feel a huge factor into how people view players and they don't really understand the game. Like they don't understand the X's and O's of football on an in-depth level to be able to make an honest judgment of a player yeah and even like a guy like Le'Veon Bell who historically was the best running back in football for three or four years yeah. goes to the Jets last year absolute disaster right Sam Darnold has missed half this season right offensive line was in shambles and now people are saying like he's not even a top 10 running back yeah like did he just it's fall absurd. off the earth like Alvin Kamara misses three or four games last year with an ankle injury. People had him, in my opinion, a little highly ranked. Like people were saying he was a number one or two back in the league where I thought he was more of a gadget player, but still really talented. And you have 12 running backs ranked ahead of him on ESPN. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. It's like people have a good year and people have a bad year, but that doesn't mean they jump seven, eight, nine, ten 10 spots in the ranking. So I'll get off my soapbox, but that was something that kind of irked me. Well, this and weekend. I think... Well, and I think too that people feel like these guys are so talented that they're expected to perform game in and game out over the course of an entire season. And I understand that. Like we look for consistency and I think that's a fair gauge of how you look at a player. But it's like, I even look at a guy like Devontae Adams or Keenan Allen. Both of those guys I would take over Michael Thomas. And I just, for me, I don't, I don't mean to bash or sit here and nitpick at Michael Thomas's game and act like he's not a good player. He is a good player, but I I comfortably would take eight to 10 guys before I would take him. And so I think when you look at systems, a lot of people also try to pin that against certain players, but I feel like even with Drew Brees, and I'm the biggest fan of Drew Brees, I don't know if he has the same career if he stays in San Diego. Like I just don't. I think he would have been really good, but I don't think we would look would have looked at Drew Brees the same way we do today 
if he stayed in San Diego and so are now the LA Chargers. But anyway, I, I think that we need to, if we're going to have an opinion and make a judgment about somebody, you need to understand the game and you need to understand more than just reading stats on Bleacher Report or ESPN.com or reading or watching first take and making your opinions based off of theirs. Like go watch film and see these guys actually run the route tree and you tell me what you think. And I think that's one of the reasons like Aaron Rodgers is getting all this flat. Like everyone's off the Aaron Rodgers train. <laughs> like did he forget like, how to play football now? No, they ran the ball it. really well last year. Like when you can run the ball that dominant, like you don't need to pass the ball 45 times. He didn't fall off. They switched their offense. So now everyone's like, oh, is Aaron Rodgers a top five quarterback in the NFL? Like Blast tell me four quarterbacks are going to take ahead of Aaron Rodgers. But the reality is he wasn't a top 10 fantasy quarterback. So everyone thinks he sucks. Yeah, and I, I think, too, just the offense they ran last year, I, they were very conservative, and he protected the football. He didn't turn the ball over very much last year. And so I think because people are used to seeing that gunslinger mentality from Aaron and his just wow throws, he didn't have a ton of those last year. So, again, it's like when people are on another level of greatness, when they don't do that game in and game out, you feel like they're getting worse, but they're not. Like LeBron James could give you a triple-double every night, like guaranteed. But that's not always a part of the game plan. So it doesn't mean that he's not great. It doesn't mean that he's lost a step. It just means for that particular game plan, that wasn't the strength against that opponent. So I, I think stats are incredibly important. And I'm not trying to act like they don't play a role. But I think people sometimes can often get into stats on a surface level and judge it based on that. When if you actually go watch game film, and you study it, you, you might see different things than what the stats are telling you. But I think stats are a great gauge to start, but they can't be the be-all, end-all in your arguments. So my pick of the day is going to be the LeBron James 2003-2004 rookie card that sold for a record $1.84 million. And I used to collect cards. I don't know if you did back in the day before it was cool. And I never sold them, but I, I remember saving up like lunch money and going What's to the card the stores. Most- What's the most you would spend for any type of memorabilia? Like the absolute most. So not just cards, like any type. Not of just card, like anything. I feel like if it's Super Bowl related to the Cowboys, like if it was like a game worn jersey, like the jersey that Emmett Smith or Troy Aikman wore, if I had the money, whatever the price tag was, I would probably do it because I just feel like anything related. Again, it wouldn't even have to be a jersey. It could be could be cleats. I would prefer a jersey just because I think they look better when you frame them and you hang them in like well, your so you office. You can put a jersey on a wall. You can have a sports wall. Exactly. Like, what are you going to do with a card for $1.8 million? Well, I think that's the weird thing for me is that I think cards are great. And this is why I don't think I ever got into it, like the buying and selling and the flipping of cards was because I honestly just enjoyed owning them. Like I had books of, do you remember like those, they were like the laminated plastic sleeves that you would slide the cards in and it was like three per row or whatever. So I used to have like a ton of binders of stuff like that. And I had the different catalogs telling you how much cards were worth. This was obviously early internet days. So it wasn't like it is today, but I just enjoyed collecting them because I thought they were cool. Like of my favorite players, I remember, I remember one time I got a, Tim Duncan jersey card signed in this pack. Like it was this card shop. They did like once a day, they did like this drawing. And if you won the drawing, then you got this bag. It was literally like those brown paper bags of cards. And you could just get normal cards or you potentially could get what I got. And it was only one time that I ended up getting it, but I got a Tim Duncan signed jersey card. 
And I just remembered stuff like that. I, like I wasn't thinking, and maybe it was because I was younger, but I wasn't thinking, hey, I'm going to flip this. I was just like, this is a great addition to my collection. And I don't know what you do with that card. Like there's so much more you can do with almost $2 million. And so even for the biggest card enthusiasts or connoisseurs, I don't see, it's like you get the high of like buying it because you just got a car that's super rare. You, it's a record setting price that you paid for it. So you're like on this high, like the, or the rush of endorphins are just going crazy. But then you like come back down and you get home and you're like, you have this little card in this little case that you just paid almost $2 million for. And like, do so, you think the guy who bought this bought it to flip it later? Or do you think he's just the biggest LeBron James fan on the planet behind Skip Bayless? So I think I think that he bought it because he's a collector. I don't necessarily now it's possible, but and I also I don't know if you heard this, but LeBron has two of those cards himself, like of himself. So again, I feel like when you pay this much for it's like buying art. It's very rare unless you're in the business of like flipping art. Like if you're going to spend $2 million for a piece of art, there's a pretty good chance you're probably keeping it for yourself. So I feel like that's the road this guy's going to go down. But then again, you know, maybe he holds onto it for another 20 years and maybe it's worth 5 mil, you know, who knows? But I think ultimately, at least at where he's at today, my guess, obviously I'm not this guy, but if I were to get into side, get inside his mind, I would think, Hey, I just spent almost $2 million for this card. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to add it to my collection. I can now say that I'm a proud owner of this card. But here's the crazy thing. So the price on this King James rookie card, so it sets a record for modern day cards, which is basically from 1980 and beyond. And it's also the largest amount any basketball card has ever sold for. So, and I thought this was a really cool stat. And I, I love details and intricacies like this. So there are only 23 of these cards ever made to match LeBron's jersey number. Um, and then it was given a 9.5 mint gem by Beckett grading surface. It was one of only two of these particular cards graded that high. So only two of these 23 were even given that high of a grade. And then I thought this was really fascinating as well. So this sale surpassed our previously held record set back in May of this year when the same exact auction house sold a gem mint Bowman draft chrome red refractor Mike Trout signed rookie card for $922,500. And that was one of five ever made as well. And those were the highest grade. I know that was a mouthful, but still, how crazy is it? Like the same auction house within two months set two records for for trading cards. I think the crazier thing to me is the fact that Mike Trout's card almost sold for a million dollars when besides like what he's done statistically and watching him play, like he hasn't accomplished nearly to the level LeBron has. Not at all. He probably has 10 more years of playing. So if that it shows card you how good for he is. that now, like imagine what that card's going to be worth in 20 years. I mean, that card's going to be worth what, $5 million? No, I know. And I, I think he's... That's to our point, I think a few episodes ago, I mentioned that I believe Trout's going to go down as the greatest player ever. Like consistently year after year, there's never been anybody better and it's not even close. So you're right. Now that's a card. If you're asking me that question that you asked about the LeBron card, that's a card I feel like you got to hold on to and flip. Because to your point in five, 10 years, is it double? Is it five? You know, so I feel like that's a card worth holding on to if you're going to flip it. Believe it or not, Sports are finally back. Baseball started spring training on Saturday, and the season will be getting underway Thursday. 
Obviously, we have some notable contenders with the New York Yankees, Washington Nationals, and will it finally be the LA Dodgers year? But to me, there's another team in LA that I'm hoping makes the cut. They're the Anaheim Angels. They got Mike Trout, recently signed Anthony Rendon. Otani is going to be on the mound and playing outfield this year. I think this might be the first time in Trout's career where they make the playoffs. You look at historically, they've been hot offensively. Pitching has kind of been a sore point for them. But when you look at the new format, 60 games, if they can get off to a hot start, I think this might finally be Mike Trout's year. What do you think, man? Yeah, I love this roster that the Angels have put together. This is the best team I feel like Trout's had in his young career. I love the addition of Rendon. Otani's going to hopefully get on, get back on the mound. I don't think he's going to be thrust into that role as heavily as maybe we would have liked to have seen in a normal season. But with this shortened season, I think you're going to see a little bit of apprehensiveness to their approach. But with his ability to dominate the game from the offensive side and his bat, having Rendon, Trout, and Otani in that lineup is going to give Trout a ton of protection. And that's, that's what they've lacked throughout the course of Trout's career is that pitchers have known that there really wasn't any other threats in the lineup. And so they could do what they wanted with Trout and they could be a lot more strategic with how they were going to game plan because they knew Trout's bat was going to be a problem, but they weren't going to have to necessarily worry about anybody else. Now you have an issue. Now you have three bats that can take you out. So I really like this team. I hope this is the time that they finally take advantage of this chance going into a 60-game season where they can get off to a pretty hot start, hopefully, and get into the playoffs and try to make some noise. I really do feel like this is an opportunity, and I don't want them to squander it because I would like to see Trout in the playoffs. It's better for baseball. It's better for their brand. But I don't think I don't see them making a deep run in the playoffs. But when you're looking at a team, again, in Los Angeles, the true Los Angeles team, the Dodgers, we talked about this as well prior to our show This team is so deep and so stacked. They have no excuse. This is a World Series caliber team. You get Mookie Betts probably for one year, so you got to take advantage of that in this shortened season. You have Cody Bellinger coming off of an MVP season. You have Max Muncie. You have obviously still Clayton Kershaw. You got Walker Bueller. I mean, you've got arms. You've got the the question mark is going to be in their bullpen. And is their bullpen going to be able to be called upon and deliver when they need to deliver? And that's that's yet to be seen, but if you're looking at this on paper, this team is ready to win a World Series championship. So when we're looking at California teams, the, both of them are, they couldn't be more different from each other, um, but I feel like one is on the cusp of getting into that next stage and that next level of getting into the playoffs in the Angels, and then you have the Dodgers who have really dominated in the last eight years. They've won the NL West eight straight years. So they're definitely a favorite. I personally, this is what I love about baseball right now, is there's an injection of youth. There's a lot of young talent. So in 2019, there was 29 positional players aged 25 or younger who had at least a 3.0 war, which is wins above replacement. The most ever in one season was back in 2018, the year prior, which is at 27. So if we lower the cutoff to 24 or younger, we still had about 18 position players tied for the second highest all-time behind 20 players, which was back in 1979. So there's an injection of youth, and they're all incredibly talented. Like This is not like a group of guys that are, you got some superstars, you got some really good players, and then some like above average players. All these guys have potential to be MVP type caliber players. So I'm really excited to see 
what these guys do this season. A team that I also want to talk about in California is the Padres. I'm hoping this is the year they finally can squeak in as well. They've added, you know, added Eric Hosmer. You had Fernando Tatis Jr. come up and had an injury riddled season towards the end of the year, but early on looked really explosive. Then, you know, they had the big signing last year of Manny Machado. So there's a lot, you know, and then you have Chris Paddock on the mound. So I love this team right now. They're another team like the Angels where I feel like they're on that cusp. And this could be in this shortened season, be the thing that pushes them forward and into the playoffs. But here, a team I want to talk about that is probably the most well-known baseball franchise is the New York Yankees. And I feel like they're going to be incredibly good this year. Even though it's 60 games, I feel like they're going to win the AL East and they're going to make a deep run in the playoffs. This team has also a great chance and a great opportunity of getting to the World Series and winning the whole thing. Aaron Judge is back healthy. John Carlos Stanton's back healthy. Glaber Torres is super young, budding star at shortstop. So there's a lot to love here. They still have a role this Chapman to close things out. So again, I'm pumped to see some of the big brands like the New York Yankees, the LA Dodgers. And then you have teams like possibly the Padres, possibly the Angels get into the playoffs. And then some of the you know smaller brands like the Twins or the Brewers, both. I love the addition this offseason, Dustin, of the Twins getting Josh Donaldson. I thought this was huge. Had a great bounce back year with Atlanta last year. So there's a lot to love. My picks for the World Series are going to be the Dodgers coming out of the NL. And then this is going to destroy people. But my pick coming out of the AL is going to be the Houston Astros. They just have too much talent. Like, I get that you don't like them. I understand that you feel like they've jeopardized the legitimacy and the integrity of baseball. But this team is so stacked and so deep. And the fact that there's no fans, it just makes it... I feel like it's such a punch in the face to baseball and to every other franchise that they don't have to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, I think the AL is pretty simple. I think you have the Yankees or you have the Astros. And besides that, like, I don't know what surprise team has nearly the level of talent around them where they compete with either of those two guys. I might give a little bit of the edge to the Yankees just because they were so injury-plagued last year. Right. And they still played so well. They have a returning manager where it's going to be interesting to see. Like, I don't think a manager has as big of an impact on baseball because so much is data-driven. So much of it is your GM giving you the lineup card based yeah. upon if it's a righty or a lefty, and it's so situational with shifts and all that type of stuff. But when you look at a 60-game season and having to – kind of coordinate that and give people off days and adjust your pitching rotation. I think having a new coaching staff in on that type of situation, I think that's a little bit hard. So I give a slide to the Yankees. They also had a decent offseason by signing Garrett Cole, who in most people's minds probably is a top three ace in baseball. So I'd probably give the slide to them. But I love the storylines like you mentioned. There's so much young talent. One of the divisions that really intrigues me is the NL East, right? So you have two of probably the biggest budding superstars in Acuna, uh, who plays for the Braves, as well as Juan Soto. And then you look in that same division, they have Bryce Harper, who signed a massive contract last season and really like didn't live up to the hype. Neither him or Machado had the year one impact they thought they were going to have. But when you look at Harper, they have Aaron Nova, who's an amazing ace. They brought in Zach Willard to either be the two or the three on that staff. So you look at that team in a shortened division. Part of me thinks there's a good chance the Nationals have that year after kind of take a step yet take a step back you know it's really hard like they say the second championship first championship's hard but a second championship so hard because not only is there a big bullseye on your back but you have to keep that driving 
aggression to try to repeat when now everybody's coming for you. I mean, nobody thought going in a nasty, I mean, people thought the Nationals had a chance, but they also thought, oh, they lost Harper. The Dodgers are loaded. You know, some people, you know, mo- most people, I think preseason actually had the Braves kind of running away with that division last year. And then obviously the Nationals started off horrible, but really got hot going. So that's going to be a really interesting division to me. I think this may be the year the Phillies kind of take the division. Because yeah, they I have feel good, good about stats. Philadelphia this year too. Uh, getting Andrew McCutcheon they, was great. I love that addition. So I, I, I feel like Philly's going to make a run this year too. Yeah, and I think both Bryce and Machado last year, you could tell they wanted to play so well so early on because they just signed this huge historic contract that sometimes that puts a little bit of pressure on you. It looked like Bryce yeah, almost no every at-bat he was trying to hit a bomb. Streaks to me are really cool in sports, right? So you have like streaks like consecutive starts or strikeouts. Well, there's a number of streaks this year where they're going to have to end because there's just not enough games. So Matt Scherzer, obviously the ace on the Nationals, he has a lo- the second longest streak in baseball with not- with eight consecutive seasons of striking out 200 batters. Yeah, there's only one other pitcher in the history of baseball who's gone nine times. There's a good chance Scherzer would have been able to do that if he played for a full season, but you look at, he's going to have nine. Maybe they'll push to 12 stars if managers get a little bit more aggressive with pitchers, but it's going to be really hard to get to that. You also look like a guy like Jacob deGrom, or you could probably actually just call him the New York Mets because besides them, yeah, like, who's much. on the Mets, right? He's had and Noah Syndergaard last, just been hurt the last couple of years. Who they call Thor, but Jake Jacob ruined Grom is, my fantasy team, bro. I like took him three <laughs> or four years ago in a keeper team. Talking about fantasy baseball or sports, like uh, inflating people's value. <laughs> but you look at a guy like Jacob Degrom, two years of back to back Cy Young awards, which really shows how dominant he is because yeah. he gets no run support, doesn't get a lot of wins. He's had over two hundred and fifty strikeouts and an ERA of two point five per inning over the last two after the last two seasons. So it's going to be interesting to see, can he do that for a third consecutive year and get his third straight Cy Young award? And then the last one is Pete Alonso. So Pete Alonso came on by storm, really pretty much the only player probably on the Mets besides Jacob deGrom that we would know about last year. He hit for 50 home runs as a rookie. The only player that's hit for 50 home runs in consecutive years back to back is old Alex Rodriguez. And so there is probably a good chance Pete Alonso would at least come close to that streak if he stays healthy because all the guy do, does is hit for power. And it's going to be really hard to hit 50 home runs in 60 games. So we've all heard of that quote. And if you haven't, then maybe this is the first time you're hearing it. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And when you're a commissioner of a sports league, that's your job to be a leader to facilitate, to manage the players, the finances, just different aspects of those leagues. And when you choose to not lead properly, you get backlash, not only from your players, from the media, from fans that watch your sport. And I look at Roger Goodell, who I feel like has been largely looked at as a negative face to the NFL. And it shows you how powerful the shield is, because even though I would say overwhelmingly, the majority of fans, players, probably owners don't like Roger. The NFL is the juggernaut. It's the giant of American sports. And this came out a couple of days ago over the weekend. And a few players were pretty upset about Roger's ability to put together some sort of a plan for the players to take action on as they head into training camp and they head into preseason and the season of different protocols to follow, different guidelines 
on their safety with the pandemic. And these were pretty big names. You got guys like Drew Brees, Todd Gurley, Jarvis Landry, Miles Garrett, even Russell Wilson, and J.J. Watt, and some other guys came out. And they all want to play, but there really hasn't been any communication from the league to the NFL Players Association on what they what what rules they need to follow, how they need to put themselves in the best position to be not only healthy and safe for themselves, but for their families. And you know, a guy like Russell Wilson, who has a wife that's pregnant currently, Sierra, those are legitimate concerns that he has. And so, I think with how much the NFL dominates. American sports, television, the money they generate in revenue, they almost, to me, this comes across as very arrogant. Like, we're the NFL, we just kind of are going to do what we want, and they've even left it up to the different states or cities that these teams are in, um, and the owners of those teams to decide whether or not they want fans. Like, they haven't even come out and said, hey, here's here's the rules you got to follow as far as fans are concerned in terms of capacity. They've kind of just said, hey, like, it's up to you guys. And on a level, on one hand, I kind of go, okay, like, there's some of that I like, but you're the leader. Like, you need to, there needs to be an action plan. There needs to be something in place that the players can turn back to and go, hey, this is what I need to do for X situation or Z situation. And I just haven't seen that from Roger and the NFL. So I'm I'm interesting, I'm interested to see what's going to happen over the next coming weeks of what's going to be released. What are the rules? What are the guidelines that the players need to follow? Because they have questions just like we do. I'm going to go on a very unpopular take. If you're Roger Goodell, I don't know what exactly you're supposed to do. Like, I'm, I'm being honest. Like, I've never been a Roger Goodell supporter. You can probably listen to five or six podcasts where I absolutely hammer Roger Goodell. But when you look at this situation, there are certain rules and guidelines you can put in place. Like, you could go across the league and say, hey, we're not going to have fans or we're going to have 20% capacities. There are certain things you can do. But when you look at baseball and the plan they put out, you can't mirror that because baseball is a non-contact sport. Like, the two contact rules baseball put in were you can't be within six feet of an umpire and you can't spit chewing gum and you can't high five and you can't dab. You play the game of football by tackling someone. So you can't go off of that rule book, right? You look at the NBA and the NBA has a bubble. Well, yeah, the league's going to be around for the next, sorry, this season's going to be around for what, 30 days? You can't create a bubble for four to five months. Like there's nothing you can do. And if you look at now, it's hard to fit a football stadium into a bubble. You look at everything that gets released from different news circuits and whether you believe all of it or not, everything that's coming out. There's nothing you can take that information from and say, oh, we're going to make a safe tackle football league based upon the information that's getting surfaced out. So, yeah, there's things you can do. You can test people before practice. You can let people have an opt-out option. You can try to do as much non-contact during the week, but the NFL is already so much non-contact. I think they only wear pads two days a week. To me, the only thing Roger Goodell can really do is say, hey, from a fan standpoint, this is what we're going to do to protect the fans. And from a player standpoint, we can take temperature tests and we can do all of the things to currently test if you have the virus and we can do a, a 14-day quarantine and we can say if you have two failed tests, you can't play. But players aren't going to like that. Like that's not going to be uniformly accepted from players. Like a guy like Tom Brady, who's 43 years old, if he wants to play, he's not going to be like, yo, now I have to miss two games. Like in the NBA, you miss two games. It's an 82-game season. In baseball, even now, if you miss 
two weeks with COVID and you're a pitcher, maybe you miss a start. If you're an NFL player and you have to quarantine for two days, you could miss two to three games. That's your season if you're a starting quarterback. It doesn't work. So you can basically do two things. You can you can create that rule, which is going to upset most of the players, or you can say, hey, we have an opt-out. Like To me, the only real option is giving players the right to opt-out. I think what this really shows is people just don't like Adele. They don't. And Goodell has done a lot of things historically to create the narrative where he's not a player guy because it's really not his job to be for the players. It's not. His job is to make that the is owners true. as rich as it is. That is and true. And I actually think probably most of the owners like him because when you have teams like Jacksonville where their appraisal fee on that franchise is $2.3 billion, I think the owners love Goodell. I just think he's in a, a no-win situation. And when you look at the way football is played and you look at how long the season is, there's nothing you can do to make football fit in this COVID protection world. You can't. So I agree with you from the standpoint of the context, right? As far as the pandemic, the details of that, what can or cannot be done, I agree with that. There's really not much you can do. You're going to have to play. Whatever happens, happens. And you have to adjust from that standpoint. Here's where I have an issue. He's the leader. And even though I agree that there isn't much as far as rules and guidelines that he can do, he can communicate and stay consistent. So for example, the fact that the league is going to be implementing these masks that are going to connect to their face masks for the helmets. It's like you have something like that, but then you don't really have rules and guidelines in terms of the testing, which this did just get released today. They're going to do COVID testing daily. And then if they start to see a lot of um, if they see negative or, te- or the tests come back negative and they're not seeing any results of COVID during the course of the season, they'll end up going to every other day. So that did get released. But my thing is that you're the leader. So there needs to be a set of guidelines, whether it's a minimal amount of guidelines or it's a ton, there needs to be something because he is the leader. And so when you, to me, it look again, it's the look, it's not that and I don't even have a big issue with Roger Goodell. I think he's actually done a lot of great for the league. I would agree with you that he's not necessarily the player's commissioner. That's Adam Silver of the NBA. Roger Goodell is never going to be that face. However, the way that he's, the rules he's implemented in the game, he's tried to make it safer. I feel like he's made it a lot more entertaining, a lot more fun to watch as a viewer, as a fan. And But when you think about it from a leadership standpoint, you have to go, okay, I get paid 30 plus million dollars a year to be the commissioner of this league. It's my job, even though this is a weird situation and there wasn't a ton of time to adjust. Look, if Adam Silver was able to create something, now again, I'm not talking about the context. I agree with you. The actual meat of what the rules are for the NBA is so different from what the NFL can even do or Major League Baseball for that matter. So I agree with you there. But it's the fact that there really isn't anything. Like there's no structure. And that's my issue is that, he, at times, I believe, kind of creates this narrative of why people don't like him. Like he kind of plays into that by not doing certain things. Maybe it's intentional. Maybe it's unintentional. I don't know. I'm not Roger Goodell. However, when he does certain things like this and then the players respond, media, the media responds, then it starts to feed into what people believe to be true about Roger Goodell, which I don't necessarily fully agree with. But I would just have liked to have seen him stay consistent with whatever it is that he is going to release to the players, whether that's like you said, whether it's something that's super minimal, like you're going to opt in or opt out or something super in depth, 
But I, I just, that to me is where I go, okay, you have players that are not just random players. These are faces of franchises that are speaking out. You don't necessarily want that look for yourself. Um, but I don't know. I, I just think that when you're a leader of something, that's your job. That's your duty. That's what he's getting paid to do. And I just don't feel like he's handled this situation the best. He did a great job with the draft. I feel like he adjusted on his on his feet really quickly with that. But then it's kind of been like we've been in this limbo and we've been waiting for what's going to happen with football. I think a lot of people feel like the season's going to start on time, which is great. And there's probably going to be one to two, maybe zero preseason games. But ultimately, my belief is that things will go as normal and as planned. Um, and maybe, and two, look, I'll even be empathetic and give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he feels like, hey, it's going to, the season is going to end up playing out the way that any normal season would. So I don't really have to implement any plans and you can either opt in or opt out. Yeah. I think what makes this so complicated is there's just, there's so much going on. Like there's not another sport league where you can have Russell Wilson, Drew Brees called a commissioner and casual fans will like get upset when they see the name in the timeline. But if the NFL season started tomorrow and Russell Wilson and Drew Brees opted out, like people are going to still watch football. I think for me, the That's only true. thing that I can think of from Goodell's standpoint, and I think the biggest mistake he's made is he just needs to come out publicly and talk. Like even if That's he's not what I'm saying. in space, yes. he needs to come out and say like, hey, we're meeting with our financial, uh, not our financial, we're meeting with like the medical professionals in the field. We're looking at different testing um, based upon contact and how the virus spreads via sweat and different things like that. The reality is we don't have anything out. That's where he's failing because I think Roger's biggest biggest fear is, hey, what happens if we start the season and someone dies and they have the virus? You look at what's going on with the NFL and concussions, like everything that's come out for the past 25 years for concussions, right? And the reality is like even testing statewide right now, it's different in California versus Texas, then New York. Some people will test it if you have symptoms. Some people say if you're, you know, within the realm of other people who possibly tested positive. And so it's so different from state to state. Like if you're Roger Goodell and you run besides Amazon, probably the biggest money dominating business in all of North America, like it's kind of scary, you know, especially when you probably have the best job in the world making $30 million a year, pissing off absolutely everybody. And so I think from the standpoint of, can you just come out and say something? Like you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have this 12 page plan in place, but at least let us know you're working on something because everyone just wants to have football. Even if the capacity is a little bit different, even if the structure is different, even if you change the timeout situation or you change the no huddle or after a certain amount of plays, people have to like come off and wipe themselves down. Like people hated replay last year and the NFL still had the highest numbers of all time. People hated the passing interference rule. People still watch football. I'd go into work on a Monday or a Tuesday after a big Sunday night football game and a big Monday night football game. And you'd hear people complaining about the referees and this and that for three and a half hours. And guess what? The same people watch football the next Sunday and the next Monday. It's going to happen. And so you just need to come out as a leader, as a commissioner and say, hey, we don't have a plan, but we hear our players. We hear our owners. We hear the fans. We're working on it. More to come. It's that simple. I agree. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, but I'm excited that football's back. We need it in America. I'm not trying to be insensitive to the pandemic. We just, we need it. So I'm super pumped. I cannot wait. I'm excited for training camp to start here at the end of the month. 
And that's going to wrap things up for episode 21 of the DNC podcast. Again, thank you for tuning in each and every week and being a part of the community. Again, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Dustin and Cool Podcast. Go ahead and engage with us on there. We got some great content that we're putting out daily. Go ahead and drop in our DM. Let us know different topics, questions you might have. Just be a part of the community. We want this podcast and show to be not just about us, but also about the people that choose to be a part of it. And we appreciate it. Uh, Rate, review, subscribe to it. Please share it with family and friends. And we'll see you guys Friday. Mm